come to the last part of this chapter called All That Is Conditioned. And this is uh, uh, mostly a reading from uh, a Dhamma talk of Lumpur Chars. It's entitled Toward the Unconditioned. And this originally appeared in um, uh, a book called Living Dhamma when uh, Lumpur Chars funeral was being prepared in uh, 1993, uh, well, it had been prepared in 1992, the funeral happened in 93. Uh, they put together uh, four books of Lumpur Chah's teachings. They reprinted Bodhinyana and Taste, uh, Taste, of, Taste of Freedom, and then they uh, uh, produced two other books, one mostly uh, uh, teachings for lay people that was called Food for the Heart, and then the other one, which was mostly for monastics, which was called Living Dhamma. And so this was uh, from the book Living Dhamma, and it was from a talk that was given um, on the observance day, uh, the, the one part night, uh, in 1976, sometime in 76. Finally, in this chapter, here are some of the words of Venerable Ajahn Chah on the issue of the conditioned realm and its relationship to the unconditioned. The Buddha talked about Sankata Dhammas and Asankata Dhammas, conditioned and unconditioned things. Conditioned things are innumerable, material or immaterial, big or small. If our mind is under the influence of delusion, it will proliferate about these things, dividing them up into good and bad, short and long, coarse and refined. Why does the mind proliferate like this? Because it doesn't know conventional, determinate reality. It doesn't know about conditions. Not knowing these things, the mind doesn't see the Dhamma. Not seeing the Dhamma, the mind is full of clinging. As long as the mind is held down by clinging, there can be no escape from the conditioned world. As long as there is no escape, there is confusion, birth, old age, sickness and death, and even in the thinking processes. This kind of mind is called the Sankata Dhamma, the conditioned mind. Asankata Dhamma, the unconditioned, refers to the mind that has seen the Dhamma, the truth of the five khandhas as they are, as transient, imperfect and ownerless. All ideas of me and mine, them and theirs, belong to the determined reality. Really, they are all conditions. When we know the truth of conditions, we know the truth of the conventions. When we know the conditions as neither ourselves nor belonging to us, we let go of conditions and conventions. When we, love, when we let go of conditions, we attain the Dhamma. We enter into and realize the Dhamma. When we attain the Dhamma, we know clearly. What do we know? We know that there are only conditions and conventions, no self, no us, no them. This is knowledge of the way things are. Seeing in this way, the mind transcends things. The body may grow old, get sick and die, but the mind transcends this state. When the mind transcends conditions, it knows the unconditioned. The mind becomes the unconditioned, the state which no longer contains conditioning factors. The mind is no longer conditioned by the concerns of the world. Conditions no longer contaminate the mind. Pleasure and pain no longer affect it. Nothing can affect the mind or change it. The mind is assured. It has escaped all constructions. Seeing the true nature of conditions and the determined, the mind becomes free. During this talk, Lumpur uh, Chai uses these, these terms... Um, a condition or a convention. Um, so a condition would be um, sankata or sankara. Uh, sankara is a condition. Sankata means conditioned. Uh, the, the adjective describing it. Uh, conventions, uh, this is what, what uh, uh, is called in Pali samuti satya or a conventional truth. So we say uh, today is Wednesday. That's a conventional truth. It isn't absolutely and intrinsically Wednesday. It's a human agreement 
to call this particular experience of of, uh, of time and uh, the cycle of days, we call it Wednesday. Uh, you could call it uh, two days before the half moon. It's, it's that as well, so, according to our calendar. Um, so uh, that's a, a, a convention, is a, a uh, samuti sancha, uh, like a, a human agreement. He also often uses the term determinations, which we'll get to later in the talk. So things are determined into existence. So we, we determine this as as a, a book, uh, or we, we determine this as being Wednesday. Um, so that those those uh, uh, terms are kind of interchangeable. Um, and when he says the mind becomes the unconditioned, the state which is uh, which no longer contains conditioning factors. It's a that's a uh, a turn of phrase because you, you, if you want to to pick up a, uh, that as a comment, like the mind, how can something become the unconditioned? <laughs> you know, it's a, if it's if it's unconditioned, it's outside of the realm of time. But rather, that's a, a turn uh, uh, that the translator ha has used that is sort of a, generally speaking about that. But rather, I say the the mind awakens to the unconditioned, or the mind realizes the unconditioned aspect of its own nature. I would say is a probably a more accurate way of of speaking about that. Does that make sense? Okay. Do say no if if the answer is no. <laughs> These readings are for you. They're not just for me. You know, filling the air with noise. <laughs> Yeah, I can do that um, for hours on end, but uh, <coughs> these, the point is for people to understand. If you don't understand, then there's no point. I, I'm not familiar. I haven't listened to the these talks in the uh, entire language. Somebody like uh, well, Ajahn Puriso did the. The former Arjun Puriso did the original translation, or someone like uh, Ajahn Jayasaro or Ajahn Kevali, who've uh, listened to these talks over and over and over. They would be very familiar. They'd be able to just tell you straight off. Um, but uh, the the usual Thai um, for Sankara is Sankhan, just for meaning a, a conditioned thing. And then um, the phrase that Ajahn Chai uses for conventions. Uh, and also for um, its its counterpart, the the um, the, uh, the unconditioned or the, the that which transcends, he uses kong samut like samuti sacha as the conventional truth. Of kong samut like a, and kong means a thing, so like kong samut means a, a conventional thing, and he uses that paired with kong vimut. Uh, and vimuti literally means um, liberation, but so the, then in in the Pali you don't usually get the two. As a pair, um, but uh, because they sound similar to each other in Thai, Ajahn Chah just uses the alliterative, the the, the similarity in sound, like Kong Vimut Kong Samut, as a sort of a, a neat pair, putting the two things together. The the meaning is very very similar, but you don't have Samuti and Vimuti so much together in the in the Pali. But uh, because of the the kind of easiness of of speaking about it and the the alliteration. Then uh, Lumpur Chai uses that, and in this talk, but also in another talk, which is called "Convention and Liberation," which I have a little passage of at the end. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what um, you'd have to listen to the recordings. I mean, they're they're very uh, widely um, available, but I couldn't tell you. Seeing the true nature of conditions and the determined, the mind becomes free. So that means that which has been determined into into uh, uh, existence and realizing that it has been determined, that it's coming from an assumption or, or an, an agreement. This freed mind is called the unconditioned, that which is beyond the power of constructing influences. If the mind doesn't really know conditions, and determinations, it is moved by them. Encountering good, bad, 
pleasure or pain, it proliferates about them. Why does it proliferate? Because there's still a cause. What's the cause? The cause is the understanding that the body is oneself, or belongs to the self, that feelings are self, or belong to self, that perception is self, or belonging to self, that conceptual thought is self, or belonging to self, that consciousness is self, or belonging to self. <clears throat> and when, when he, uh, we use this phrase, like, uh, consciousness is self, or belonging to self, and in the chanting when we talk about um, identification with consciousness or attaching to con consciousness, uh, that might seem something like uh, uh, something that, well, I don't do that, or you know, I, I don't even really know what that, that means. So attachment to consciousness or taking consciousness as self, uh, effectively that means that the assumption that there's a me who's hearing, a me who's thinking, a me who's, who's there's a me who's knowing this moment. So that would be identification with consciousness or taking consciousness to be a self rather than there is the knowing of this moment, there is the knowing of this experience. It's that I'm knowing. This is my mind, my feelings. So that's uh, when uh, it can so it can sound like a bit of a uh, an abstract term in English to say I'm um, uh, conceiving uh, consciousness as a self. Or belonging to a self, but it's that. Uh, so that might sound a bit remote, but the the experience of thinking, I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm feeling, uh, this is my mind. That is probably uh, you, uh, uh, almost all day, every day. That's going on for most of us, right? Except in moments of insight. So it's a very, very familiar experience, even though the sound of it or the way it's spoken about might seem a bit like well. Identification with consciousness, huh? but it's it's a very very common experience. The tendency to conceive things in terms of self is the source of happiness, suffering, birth, old age, sickness, and death. This is the worldly mind spinning around and changing at the directives of worldly conditions. This is the conditioned mind. So that's a very uh, succinct way of, of speaking about it. Uh, <clears throat> why does it proliferate? Um, because there's a cause. What's the cause? The cause is understanding that the body is oneself. So that's the 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 mind believing that today. Well, today really is Wednesday. It is. Um, I I am a man. I am a person. I am Ajahnamra. That's who I am. <laughs> so that, uh, as he says, that's the. Um, the mind doesn't know determinations that Ajahn Amro is determined into existence. As I often mention to my sisters, I am not Ajahn Amro. I am their baby brother. Even though we're all over 60 now, I'm still their baby brother. <laughs> There's absolutely no impact whatsoever. That's so because you know, Ajahn Amro has been determined into existence. You know. But if I if I really believe, or if you really believe, there's an Ajahn Amaro, but you are, so you are. <laughs> then that's called the um, the source of happiness, suffering, birth, old age, sickness, and death. That is the worldly mind spinning around and changing at the directives of worldly conditions. This is the conditioned mind. The reason you can't see these things in line with the truth is because you keep believing the untrue. It's like being guided by a blind person. How can you travel in safety? A blind person will only lead you into forests and thickets. How could they lead you to safety when they can't see? In the same way, our mind is deluded by conditions, creating suffering in search for happiness, creating difficulty in the search for ease. Such a mind only makes for difficulty and suffering. Really, we want to get rid of suffering and difficulty, but instead, we create those very things. All we can do is complain. We create bad causes, and the reason we do so is because we don't know the truth of appearances and conditions. Another way that Ajahn Chah, he was a, a genius at coming up with these little uh, nifty phrases, little nuggets <laughs> of wisdom. He'd say, everyone wants happiness, but nobody likes to create the causes of happiness. <laughs> Nobody wants suffering, but everyone likes to create the causes of suffering. Right. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> he was an absolute um, uh, genius at making these little packages of, of wisdom that using very simple language but very astute uh, recognition of how the how the mind works we create bad causes and the, and the reason we do so is because we don't know the truth of appearances and conditions appearances are determined into existence why must we determine them because they don't intrinsically exist for example suppose somebody wanted to make a marker they would take a piece of wood or a rock and place it on the ground and then call it a marker. Actually, it's not a marker. There isn't any marker. That's why you must determine it into existence. In the same way, we determine cities, people, cattle, everything. Why must we determine these things? Because originally, they do not exist. So uh, this is that... Um, uh, as I was talking about in the reading the, the other day, how um, say we, we create clock because of our, our perceptions, the, the use of the English language, and, and uh, we determine that into existence. We call this particular patch of uh, experiences clock. So that was what Ajahn Chah means about determining things into existence, that uh, we don't, uh, they don't have any existence on their own. And so we, we give things names, we, we, um, we designate and we um, bring things into a particular uh, um, form according to our own conditioning, our own perceptions, our own our own language. Uh, what you're what you're interested in, uh, and, uh, and so that uh, the um, the more that one can recognise that things, all things, are determined into existence, and that the mind creates these different categories, and then uh, juggles them around, then the more that is recognized and the more is heart, the heart is able to be freed from the limitations that come from that. Concepts such as monk and layperson are also determinations. We determine these things into existence because intrinsically they aren't there. It's like having an empty dish. You can put anything you like into it because it's empty. This is the nature of determined reality. Men and women are simply determined concepts, as are all things around us. If we know the truth of determinations clearly, we will know that there are no beings, because beings are determined things. Understanding that these things are simply determinations, you can be at peace. But if you believe that the person, being, the mine and the theirs and so on are intrinsic qualities then you must laugh and cry over them these are the proliferation of conditioning factors if we take such things to be ours there will always be suffering this is michaditi wrong view names are not intrinsic realities they are provisional truths only after we are born do we obtain names isn't that so or did you have your name already when you were born Nowadays it's not uncommon. <laughs> Parents already decide the, uh, the name for their offspring before they've arrived. <clears throat> Did you already have your name when you were born? The name comes afterwards, right? Why must, we, why must we determine these names? Because intrinsically they aren't there. So this is a... Uh, he's, he has also this, this way of speaking that it sounds completely obvious as you hear the words. Uh, but they are, and it's a very, very profound principle. And just to say that um, beings are determined things. If you know the truth of determinations clearly, we will know there are no beings. So we can hear those words, and then we look around and go, oh, well, there's Caroline, and there's Ava, Ajahn Chudapala, Samanera Isaro. But then you, you line up that, that perception against, if you see this, you see there are no beings. <laughs> so it's a very uh, profound uh, statement, and it takes a lot of, of reflection and, um, and practice to uh, genuinely internalize that, so that then when, when we meet each other and look at our, our, our own experience, then there's that recognition that th this is this is not a being this, this is just mind 
This is just perceptions. This is just uh, samuti sacha, you know, coming into being, taking shape, dissolving. There aren't any beings. And I was quoting the other day from the um, uh, the Vajra Sutra, the the, the um, Perfection of Wisdom Sutra, where it says, "Living beings, living beings. Why are they called living beings? They are called living beings because there are there are no living beings. That's why they're called living beings." So, in effect, Ajahn Chah is quoting from that sutra. He wouldn't even know that it exists, probably. But um, uh, he had read some Zen texts that were translated by Ajahn Buddhadasa into Thai, but uh, I don't think he'd read that one. But uh, that, uh, that's, uh, exa- it's, say, exploring and examining exactly that same principle. Living beings, living beings. Why are they called living beings? They're called living beings because there are no living beings. That's why they're called living beings. They're determined into existence. We, we, are, we, we put this um, perception together and give it a name. But intrinsically, uh, it, uh, it, doesn't, uh, it, it is not what we, we call it. Whatever you conceive it to be, the truth is always other than that. We should clearly understand these determinations. Good, evil, high, low, black and white are all determinations. We are all lost in determinations. This is why at the funeral ceremonies the monks chant Anichavata Sankara. Conditions are impermanent, they arise and pass away. That's the truth. What is there that, having arisen, doesn't cease? Everything arises and then ceases. People are born and then they die. Bad moods arise and then cease. Good moods arise and then cease. Have you ever seen anybody cry for three or four years? <laughs> At the most, you may see people crying a whole night, and then the tears dry up. Having arisen, they cease. Te sang wu ko, and in their passing is peace. If we understand sankharas, proliferations, and thereby subdue them, this is the greatest happiness. This is true merit, punya, boon. To be calmed of proliferations, calmed of being, calmed of individuality, of the burden of self. Transcending these things, one sees the unconditioned. This means that no matter what happens, the mind doesn't proliferate around it. There's nothing that can throw the mind off its natural balance. What else could you want? This is the end, the finish. Now, bearing in mind, Ajahn Chah is sitting up on the Dhamma seat at Wat Bapong, giving his talk to many, many uh, monks, nuns, lay people, two or three hundred people gathered together on the observance night. So he's sitting there on the Dhamma seat saying, there are no monks, there are no lay people, there are no living beings. So it's a, it's a mind-blowing teaching. Because also the, the sense of, uh, of knowing this monk speaks the truth, <laughs> and he's a trustworthy and wise teacher, and here he is, here's this monk saying, there are no monks. <laughs> this, is, this human being talking to human beings saying, there are no beings. So it's deliberately mind-boggling. It's designed to boggle the mind. To go, <laughs> and, but that kind of that hesitation, that boggling, if you like, uh, where the, is where the thinking mind hasn't got a, a hook to hang a concept on. That's that's a. Um, it might seem like confusion, but it's. I would say it's it's like a gateway to wisdom because in that moment the thinking mind is is frustrated. It realizes it hasn't got a pigeonhole, to, a little box to put that in. It, it has no conception for that. So at that moment, it's awake. It's a, a mind is aware, and at that moment also the the whole self construction has collapsed. If, even if it's just for a moment. And uh, <clears throat> the, um, the the usefulness of these kind of teachings, then, in, in that in that moment of of clarity where the normal structures fall away, it helps us to then look at our preconceptions to say, well, no, there are men and women. That, that this is where the, this is where the men sit. This is where the women sit. And <clears throat> but then it also helps to say, well, that's just you know. But that's only one way of describing what we are. I mean the do you have female oxygen on this side of the room and male oxygen on that side of the room? Or the, the Ajahn Hingsko breathes out carbon dioxide 
as it crosses the room, it becomes female carbon dioxide as it crosses the, the middle of the sala. Yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> Is it, do you have female gravity on this side of the of the sala and male male gravity on this side? Some of you might be thinking, yes, <laughs> of course. But it's also, you know, it helps the well, male, female. Yeah, that's kind of it applies where, where the where the rooms are uh, arranged, where we sleep and so on. But in other dimensions, it doesn't apply. But uh, Facebook now has, I think it's fifty-five different ways of des designating your gender identity. <laughs> It was 27, and I, I quoted that to Lung Po, and, and he sort of looked at it, what? <laughs> and so I looked it up, and, and it had increased from 27 to 55 <laughs> in the sort of six months between when I looked at it. So, you know, all the different ways you can, you can designate your gender definition of what, what, how you exist in the world as a human, whether you're um, genderless, transgender, um, uh, Regular female, regular male, or um, male male body identifying as a, a female, female body identifying as a male, and uh, or in, no gender, you know, all, both genders, all genders, <laughs> undefined gender, yeah, and and so why not? Yeah, it's uh, why not? You know, this it's uh, I I think fifty five is probably going to be considered you know, a modest number. Within a couple of years, they're probably up in the two or three hundreds. It's just mind-boggling, <laughs> but uh, it's it's uh, it helps to bring into perspective. Like, no, no, that's uh, how, you know how can that be? But then it's yeah. Well, why do I? Just because I've always thought of things in that way, why does it have to be true? Just because that's what I'm used to, or well, that's that's the way I think. Like our language, you know. Our, yeah, <clears throat> certain things you can say in some languages you can't say in others. But they have, like uh, in English, we use the word Schadenfreude because the joy at someone else's misery. Because the, the English doesn't have a word for it, so they have to borrow the one from the Germans. Because because of a particular emotion that we can feel that well, yeah, the the English doesn't really have something that can represent that, but German does. We don't have joie de vie in English. We have to borrow it from the French. We're just not joyful enough. <laughs> Having the, 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 joy, the joy of life. Excuse me, I'm English. <laughs> we don't do that sort of thing over here. <laughs> so, uh, we, I, and I often say how I never realized how English I was until I lived at, at Wat Pananachat amongst all the kind of Americans and Australians and French and Germans and Italians. I thought I was normal. <laughs> I thought I I thought that the, I was completely ordinary, and then it dawned on me after a few months at Wat Pananachat. Oh, this is not ordinary. This is just one variety, <laughs> and that why should this particular set of conditioning be be what's normal? It's just what this particular being has been imprinted with along the way. But we say no, no. Being English is normal. The others are foreign. They might be good people, but they're foreigners. And you realize, well, that's ridiculous. That's completely insane. But, or if you don't think it's insane, <laughs> then you, you judge the world in that way. But if we're wise, then we, we, we recognize, well, this is just my conditioning as, uh, with this kind of a body, this kind of a language, this kind of age. Um, Many young people don't realize what it's like to be old until they get older. And they think, why, are these, why do older people complain so much? Why do, they, why, do they, why do they keep saying that old age is not for sissies? That's ridiculous. Get over it. And then they get to 50, 60, 70, and they go, right. <laughs> That's why Granny was always saying that. Okay. Right. It's not for sissies, is it? So the... Um, the, the spirit of this is that being able to recognize this is conditioning, this is a particular pattern of, of naming things or seeing things, and that 
And when the mind is fixed on its own particular judgments and believes them, this is good, this is bad, this is uh, um, right, this is wrong. As you said, good, evil, high, low, black and white, these are all determinations. And um, also, to quote from William Shakespeare, uh, there is nothing good or evil, but our thinking makes it so. From Hamlet. There is nothing uh, that is good or evil, but our thinking makes it so. And so that, uh, I mean, it's a big philosophical question, but that um, uh, in this, uh, this uh, the, uh, the theme that Ajahn Chah is, is developing here, he also would often say, uh, people that they they want to do good and they want to avoid evil, but that which is beyond good and evil, people don't talk about that which transcends the 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 good and the evil, that which is uh, beyond these dualities. Uh, this uh, people don't have words for. They don't they don't understand. They don't look for. To continue then, let the knowing spread from within you, and you will be practicing rightly. If you want to see a train, just go to the central station. You don't have to go traveling all the way up the northern line, the southern line, the eastern line, and the western line to see all the trains. If you want to see trains, every single one of them, you'd be better off waiting at Grand Central Station. That's where they all terminate. So this works very well in Thailand because that's the um, the um, uh, the uh, the main terminus in Bangkok. Huang Rumpu, is it? Kuala Lumpur, thank you. Is the, the, that's the main central station. And you do have a, a, a railway line that goes up to the north, one out to the east, one out to the west, one to the south, and they all meet at, at the um, central terminus. So rather than chasing out all the different conditions, if you, meet, if you stay at the central station, then all of the trains meet there. Now some people tell me, I want to practice, but I don't know how. I'm not up to studying the scriptures. I'm getting old now. My memory is not so good. Just look right here, pointing at his heart, at Central Station. Greed arises here. Anger arises here. Delusion arises here. Just sit here and you can watch as all these things arise. Practice right here, because right here is where you're stuck. Right here is where the determined arises, where conventions arise. And right here is where the Dhamma will arise. Now, some people say they can't practice as a lay person. The environment is too crowded. If you live in a crowded place, then look into crowdedness. Make it open and wide. The mind has been deluded by crowdedness. Train it to know the truth of crowdedness. The more you neglect the practice, the more you neglect going to the monastery and listening to the teaching, the more your mind will sink down into the bog, like a frog going into a hole. Someone comes along with a hook and the frog's done for, doesn't have a chance. All it can do is stretch out its neck and offer it to them. So, watch out you don't work yourself into a tiny corner. Someone may just come along with a hook and scoop you up. At home, being pestered by your children and grandchildren, you're even worse off than the frog. You don't know how to detach from these things. When old age, sickness and death come along, what will you do? This is the hook that's going to get you. Which way will you turn? This is the predicament our minds are in. Engrossed in the children, the relatives, the possessions. And we don't know how to, avoid, and we don't know how to let them go. Without morality or understanding to free things up, there is no way out for us. When feeling, perception, mental formations and consciousness produce suffering, you always get caught up in it. Why is there this suffering? If you don't investigate, you won't know. If happiness arises, you simply get caught up in happiness, delighting in it. You don't ask yourself, where does this happiness come from? So, change your understanding. You can practice anywhere, because the mind is with you everywhere. If you think good thoughts while sitting, you can be aware of them. If you think bad thoughts, you can be aware of them also. These things are with you. 
While lying down, if you think good thoughts or bad thoughts, you can know them also, because the place to practice is in the mind. Some people think you have to go to the monastery every single day. That's not necessary. Just look at your own mind. If you know where the practice is, you will be assured. All things are just as they are. They don't cause suffering in themselves. Just like a thorn, a really sharp thorn, does it make you suffer? No, it's just a thorn. It doesn't bother anybody. But if you go and stand on it, then you'll suffer. Why is there this suffering? Because you stepped on the thorn. The thorn is just minding its own business. It doesn't harm anybody. Only if you step on the thorn will you suffer over it. It's because of we ourselves that there's the pain. Form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. All the things in this world are simply there as they are. It's we who pick fights with them. And if we hit them, they're going to hit us back. But if they're left on their own, they won't bother anybody. Only the swaggering drunkard gives them trouble. All conditions fare according to their nature. That's why the Buddha said, If we subdue conditions, seeing determinations and conditions as they really are, as neither me nor mine, us nor them, when we see that these beliefs are simply sakaya ditti, self-view, the conditions are freed of the self-delusion. If you think, I'm good, I'm bad, I'm great, I'm the best, then you're thinking wrongly. If you see all these thoughts as merely determinations and conditions, then when others say good or bad, you can leave it be with them. As long as you still see it as, as me and as you, it's like having three hornet's nests. Hornets are like big wasps with, with painful stings if you get stung by them. <laughs> three hornet's nests. As soon as you say something, the hornets come buzzing out to sting you. The three hornet's nests are Sakayaditi, self-view, Vichikicha, doubt, and Silapataparamasa. And the footnote on this says, These are the first three of the ten fetters, the obstructions to enlightenment. So the first one, Sakayaditi, is identification with the body and the personality. Vichikicha is doubt about the nature of the path. And the third one, Silapataparamasa, is clinging to rules, roles and conventions, and believing that, for example, purification can come through the mere enactment of a procedure. Transcendence of these three is synonymous with stream entry, the first of the four levels of enlightenment. As it says, uh, if you think I'm good, I'm bad, I'm great, I'm the best, then you're thinking wrongly. If you see all these things as merely determinations and conditions, then when others say good or bad, you can leave it be with them. Well, this is a, a very, uh, very useful practice, and um, for my, for myself, uh, I learned a lot from this simple principle, and it was extremely hard to really uh, put it into put it into practice because. I uh, had spent most of my life wanting to please everybody all the time and was very conflict aversive and always trying to, to say things and do things that people would be happy about. So I was uh, somewhat compulsively uh, helpful and trying to be friendly and good and nice and likable all the time. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's hard work. And, uh, and then would be consequently really uh, anxious that people were not pleased or people didn't like me or people were uh, upset with something that I did or said. And, uh, and I, I was really unaware of the degree of tension that I sort of carried around when, uh, the, when the mind was afraid of someone not being happy or being critical or not being pleased. So once I, I began to, to see that, that habit, that mental uh, inclination to always trying to be uh, pleasing or trying to do everything right and make 
everything good and never conflict with anybody and always always um, be uh, am- amenable and helpful. And I uh, I had to, to make that a, a, a project to to be aware of that and to train the mind not to to feed that or to to be reliant on that and to um, to not try and, and to just follow that habit blindly, but rather to to know it and to and to not just be compelled by that. So uh, when this was when I was living here at Amravati back in the late eighties, early nineties, that uh, I was really looking at this very directly, and so I I um, very uh, consciously uh, made the effort to not try and be so helpful. So. <laughs> Monks and novices, please take note. Yeah. But, uh, it's good. It's a good thing to be helpful. So, if you haven't got an obstruction with being over, over helpful, don't yeah, don't follow this advice. But uh, <clears throat> it was um, it was a compulsiveness in me. So I thought, okay, let's just try and not be so helpful all the time. So I, I made a practice of not always volunteering for the washing up. So again, please ignore this advice. <laughs> They're looking for people to sign up for the washing up, but uh, you know, because I, I would always be—I I was always like when they, whenever we had the, the 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 community work, I was always like first there for the for the for the organizing the work, and I was the last one to finish, and always tidying up after other people, and and um, and not just cleaning the sinks and and cleaning the, the the tubs, but cleaning the rubbish bins as well. You know, all the things that other people would would miss. And I was always. So I realized, okay, well, maybe I can just leave that for somebody else to do, because I don't have to clean the rubbish bins. You can empty them, but you don't actually have to clean the outside of the bins, or even underneath the bin. <laughs> this is really getting a bit extreme. So Maybe you can just leave that, and just not volunteer for everything, not always be first, and maybe you could finish before somebody else for a change. And something in me was going, but, 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 uh, yeah. and, uh, and that helped me, the, me to recognize, oh, there's, there's, a, there's an attachment there. So anyway, for a couple of years, I, I worked quite directly at that. And, and, um, and it was quite marvelous, really, because I, I used to use this little internal mantra, which was, uh, just do what you do and let the world make of it what it will. Just do what you do. So be mindful and take care of, of what is appropriate. And don't be concerned about whether people approve or disapprove. And uh, m- uh, miraculously, my life got a lot more peaceful. <laughs> and as I also, when I talk about this, I, I also give uh, credit to uh, one of my fellow monks who made the comment during that time. He said, you know, you're much more easy to live with since you stopped trying to be perfect all the time. So I didn't know whether to be insulted or flattered. <laughs> I was glad that I was more easy to live with, but I didn't realize being, I was being so difficult to live with I was trying to be the, the perfect monk all the time. And so uh, this little comment where he says, when others say good or bad, you can leave it be with them. So it uh, takes a lot to, not just thinking, I don't give a damn what anyone thinks in a sort of nihilistic or negative way, but rather, I don't have to build my happiness around your opinion. I'll just do the best I can, take care of things in what seems like a good way, and it's up to you whether you like it or dislike it, or if you've even noticed. I'm just not going to pick it up or, or carry it around. It reminds me of this uh, famous Freyo, this Christian nun that we had around the and you know, told me a saint, not so difficult to be. Yeah, uh, exactly. So uh, uh, that uh, I found was very, very helpful, just... Do what you trust that you you have a good intention. You're you're only ready to learn if things can be done in a better way, but just do what you do and, and then let people make of it what they will, and then you realize that sometimes people like what you do at first and then they don't like it, <laughs> or maybe they criticize you at first and then later on they they appreciate and you realize it's not fixed in the first place. It changes all the time. It's not anything that is, is permanent or solid. And, and so I found a much, uh, a, a, quite a uh, profound sort of relaxation uh, in myself. And it was also good to know that I was easier to live with. Once you look into the true nature of determinations and conditions, pride cannot prevail. 
Other people's fathers are just like our father. Their mothers are just like ours. Their children are just like ours. We see the happiness and suffering of other beings as just like ours. So here is the practice. If I talked any more, it would just be more of the same. Another talk would, be, would just be the same as this. I've brought you this far. Now you think about it. I've brought you to the path. Whoever's going to go, it's there for you. Those who aren't going can stay. The Buddha only sees you to the beginning of the path. Akataro Tathagata. The Tathagata only points the way. For my practice, he only taught this much. The rest was up to me. Now I teach you. I can tell you just this much. I can bring you only to the beginning of the path. Whoever wants to go back can go back. Whoever wants to travel on can travel on. It's up to you now. Well, that's the end of that passage from the Toward the Unconditioned, one of the great pieces of, of wisdom from uh, from Nampucha. Any questions, reflections? Venerable Independent. Um, uh, so, Nampucha is sort of saying, suggesting sort of the way we, we designate beings that are people as, as beings, or that voice still sort of suggesting that there's something there that's designated mm -hmm. and I was wondering from the two passages you read from the Udana a few days ago one is sort of saying in the one is saying in the scene there's only the the scene um, which is I guess sort of what Ajahn Shah is saying that which uh, sorry, one is saying in the scene there's only the scene, and then the other one is saying that there's there's this sphere where where there's no where there's no earth, no there, there's a sphere where there's no earth, no fire, no water, no wind, and I guess the question is, are we just conditioning something that's there with our minds, or is the unconditioned actually going to the extent where there's sort of nothing, nothing there whatsoever? Like do, as in, do we do we Entirely bring existence into being with our with our minds. So, well, it's, there's no place in the in the Pali Canon where the Buddha says that uh, everything is a dream. You know, that's that's a, you get that kind of uh, sometimes on on sort of, uh, fridge magnets and such like. You know. Buddha said it's all a dream, you know, but he didn't. Uh, you can't find any place in the Pali Canon where he says that. So uh, you you can say there is there there is a basis for perception, but you can't say what that is. So you can say that the four elements, so that nature functions according to its laws, the four elements, uh, the material world and the and the mental world, they function according to their laws, their niyamas. But what the that is that is functioning. It's not definable because, like we were saying the other day, we experience it from our human scale. And and uh, but that doesn't the the human scale is not the it's like being English. It's like that's it's, we call the human scale normal. But what makes that normal? You know, it's like well, what's a long time? You know, it's thirteen and a half billion years since the Big Bang. Is that a long time or a short time? Measured against what? Yeah. So that. Uh, you know, and this is something that uh, my, I and many, many others have puzzled about. So the, the why, uh, over the over the centuries, but I, I feel the the most helpful and accurate way of speaking about it is to say that there is the in the material realm we have the four elements of solidity, vibration, cohesion, and and heat. The, the four different properties, essential properties of of matter. And you have the as uh, the uh, aspects of of mind and the the way that mind works. So you have that you can say the substratum or the the basis is is there, but uh, and that functions according to natural laws, so that gravity doesn't just stop operating. You don't suddenly dis sort of disappear through the floor or uh, dissolve. You know that there is a persistence because of the. The uh, the laws of nature, 
as they are formed in this particular universe at this particular time. So that uh, <coughs> they, um, those laws then dictate how the causes, uh, causes and effects take shape. That the because this room is not uh, below zero degrees Celsius, this uh, H2O is fluid. It's not solid. If this, if we, if it was below zero here, this would be solid, not not fluid. And so that as uh, that as a property of the the, the laws of nature and the, and the way that the four elements function with each other. And then the uh, the 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 idea of a of a pure perception or unbiased perception, even scientists now realize you can't you, you can't establish that. And that the uh, one of the things that they discovered in terms of, of quantum uh, mechanics and and the subatomic physics is that you can't you can't talk about something that's happening without taking into account the nature of the, the the observer, the observing method, that the observer affects the observed. And you can't talk about what what is there without the without including the the, the method of observation and the consciousness of the observer. But, uh, you, you, there's no meaningful way you can talk about what that is that <laughs> even even to call it a that. Is, is a presumption, so that it's frustrating to the thinking mind, and and so in a way it's it's kind of neat that the with with the subatomic physics they've come to the same philosophical point. You know, you can't really say what's there. You can't have an objective little eye that look, looks as what does a quark what does a quark really look like? Well. <laughs> And then, as the, the more they research things, the more they they find sort of impossible qualities. And say, well, you can say an electron is in this spot, but if you if you measure it in a different way, actually, that electron is its its presence is spread out over all time and space, even though it's just one electron. But space is really big, and the electrons are really small. How can that one little electron have its presence over the whole of space? Well, if you look at this equation, that's what it's <laughs> that's what's happening. Or the, look at this effect; that's what's saying. That's what's going on. So again, it boggles the mind. And so that simply um, to 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 recognize there is a a basis for perceptions that functions in a in a, lawful ways of cause and effect that's good enough to me so this sort of idea that everything is just sort of occurring everything is just occurring within consciousness that's sort of something that comes more from the Bible tradition like like that the whole world just arises within an individual consciousness yeah those are there's a number of different philosophies that talk about that that's not it's not, it's, not it's not in Buddha Dhamma. But what you do have, and I, I feel, is one of the most useful teachings that we that we've uh, quoted here is that um, it's Sutta number a uh, it's 116 in Sangyutta 35. Where are we? It's um, where the Buddha says. That in the world whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world, that is called the world in this Dhamma and discipline. So that's in uh, chapter 14 here, if you're interested. It's a, so it's a, it's a little, it's a short sutta. Um, And uh, but uh, it's extremely significant. And it's uh, in the Sangyutta Nikaya section thirty-five, which is the um, the six senses. 
and it's a sutra number 116. And yeah, so it's here in the island on page 257, 258. So then the, the, the Buddha says, Because I say that the end of the world cannot be known, seen, or reached by traveling. Yet, because I also say that without reaching the end of the world, there is no making an end to suffering. So that's uh, very similar to what the Buddha said to Rohitasa, that uh, in this fathom long body is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and so on. <coughs> and so then, this is um, actually Mahakachana um, speaking, to expounding in detail this comment that the, that the Buddha has made. So what Mahakachana says is, I understand the detailed meaning of the synopsis as follows. That in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world, that is called the world in the noble one's discipline. And what, friends, is that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world? The eye is that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world. The ear, the nose, the tongue, the body. The mind is that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world. That in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world, that is called the world in the noble one's discipline. So the world that we experience is our mind's representation of the world. So that's the only world that we can know. Even if you've got nifty machinery that, <laughs> that can read what's gravity waves off in, in, in millions of light years away or down at the sort of super microscopic level, it's still the mind's representation of of the world. So that, uh, in a way, it's uh, the the Buddha was a phenomenologist. That just said, this is we, you can't say meaningfully what's outside of your own experience, you, uh, and that the only world we can know is the world as our mind represents it. But that's the only world we need to know. And that part of his, the Buddha's brilliance is this realizing you don't need to explain or talk about all that stuff that is beyond description, beyond perception. That's a, that's a, that's a red herring. That's all a waste of time. What, what we need to, to know is that this particular version of the world is experienced like this. And when it's understood clearly, and without identification or grasping, there is there's no suffering. When there's grasping or identification, then there's suffering. That's all you need to know. You don't have to know what's really, 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 really there, or where, did, where, or how did it all begin. Like, no, it's all that's all just a, a whole school of red herrings. Then one doesn't need to know any of that. And, um, and it was this um, extraordinary insight that he realized just. Uh, <clears throat> trust uh, using the, the basis of your own experience knowing that fully and clearly everything follows the same laws all that arises passes away it's not self know that, recognize that and then uh, the, uh, and then cultivate that the, the heart that's free of grasping identifying with it and that, that's all you know that the idea that there is something there that if we had the right gadget we could see <laughs> we could know then uh, it's like the, the it's it's a, uh, a distraction it's unnecessary but so, so so it's just the case that the, the freedom is in not can yeah so the freedom in the freedom of the unconditioned is in not conditioning anything anymore so and sorry that the end of the when the buddha talks about the end of the world it's the end of create like creating something out of anything but it's not that everything so disappears it's the the it's recognizing the empty nature of perceptions that my mind is creating a version of indapanyo that uh, that is being talked to and if I, if, the, if there's a, if there's a knowing, oh, this is uh, my mind's version of reality. This isn't anything absolute. 
then there can be that quality of spaciousness and and, and ease. It's a, and Ajahn Chah puts it very very succinctly and clearly in this that it's because of believing in those determinations and the values of liking, disliking, good and bad, and so forth that the mind creates, then we we create suffering out of that. Well, let me just read the last passage here, and that will be the end of this chapter. This is the opening paragraph of this uh, talk, Convention and Liberation, um, which is another one of the most marvelous expressions of uh, wisdom, in my humble opinion. (laughs) The things of this world are merely conventions of our own making. Having established them, we get lost in them and refuse to let go, giving rise to personal views and opinions. This clinging never ends. It is samsara, flowing endlessly on. It has no completion. Now, if we know conventional reality, then we'll know liberation. If we clearly know liberation, then we'll know convention. This is to know the Dhamma. Here, there is completion. So this is where he's using uh, Kong Samut, as in conventional uh, reality. Kong Vimut, which means um, uh, liberation, <coughs> or pertaining to liberation. So he uses that as a, the this pair of terms, Kong Vimut, Samut, Samut Vimut. And uh, Ajahn Chah was very um, fond of using uh, like verbal um, uh, sort of expressions that, that, that were easy to remember or were... Um, uh, rolled off the tongue you know, in, a, in a comfortable, easy way, a memorable way. So this is where he's using samut and vimut, and samuti and vimuti as a, a pair. But just uh, that, taking that, that simple phrase, the things of this world are merely conventions of our own creation. Having established them, we get lost in them uh, and refuse to let go, giving rise to personal views and opinions. This clinging never ends. It is samsara. It has no completion. So just to, to be able to use that to help recognize yeah, that the things of this world are conventions of our own creation. That uh, there is, a, as I said, there's a basis for our perceptions, but then calling uh, the, the way the mind ascribes value to things. This is mine, that's yours, this is good, that's bad. This, this should be here, it shouldn't be here. Um, then uh, that, uh, that addition of the mind is the... Uh, where the problems begin, and when the mind recognizes, oh, it's just, it's just this, <laughs> and uh, and doesn't believe in its projections. It doesn't mean to say we can't function, uh, but it means that we uh, are not limited by or tied up with the 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 um, conventions that the mind creates or the the, the perceptions that the mind uh, creates. And one of the uh, Ajahn Chah's Meditation experiences, he was off, uh, living on, on Tudong, uh, traveling through the countryside, and he was living in this old ruined temple, and he, he had um, a very a deep meditation experience one night, and um, he said that, the, the, for, for that next day and for several days, his mind was in this very, very lucid, this very clear state, and he said, he said, the... Uh, where I was, where I was staying, there was a kettle. But it was there, was there was a kettle, but it wasn't a kettle. There was a spittoon, but it wasn't a spittoon. So like the, you know, he, he would see it, but his mind wouldn't make kettleness. It's just this. <laughs> oh, there was a spittoon, like a rubbish pot. Yeah, it's that. It's completely and absolutely that. But it, it, the the normal way of designating it just sort of fell apart at that time. And so it was a very, very in, insightful period for him, and uh, <clears throat> it's because it was, it was obvious. Oh, the mind designates kettle. It takes this particular configuration of, of this material that's put together by humans and says kettle, putting water in. But that's that's something that's that's uh, designated into into existence, and that the kettleness is something that the the mind is adding to it. So that kind of experience really in, informed his his wisdom, and it's something that we can uh, really, uh, if you put it to work, it makes for very very harmonious relations 
between you and other people <laughs> and helps you to, to get by in the world to look after your own body in a very skillful way to um, uh, basically to end suffering <laughs> any thoughts questions yes Amen. Mm-hmm. I just had one once we've been reading uh, Ajahn Chan's book, uh, so I really liked the ex- how everything he described. And then you said, uh, then the mind is nothing to hang on, and uh, to create the confusion of the mind. So then I was just imagining like all of us, we sitting in this room, we think that is body. But if we're gonna supply our eye organ with something different, it's gonna bring totally different view, much more real. Like not just the organs we're gonna see, but like little atoms mixing with the air, and we're gonna stay from the distance. So what we're gonna see then? So where's eye? It's not. It doesn't exist. That's correct. No. <laughs> I just. Uh,